The mother ran into the bedroom when she heard her seven-year-old son scream as his two-year-old sister was pulling his hair. Well, mom gently released the little girl's grip and said comfortingly to the boy, there, there, she didn't mean it. She doesn't know it hurts. Well, rubbing his head, he gave an understanding nod and mom left the room. And as she started down the hall, the little girl screamed. Rushing back in, she asked, what happened? And the little boy replied, well, now she knows how it feels. Sweet revenge. Revenge, it's a quality we like in our movie heroes, isn't it? Think of our say, some of our favorite movie heroes. John Wayne, James Bond, Ray from Star Wars, The Force Awakens, or Captain Marvel. We pay money to see these heroes because they don't just get mad, they get what? Even. Not only is revenge at the heart of American culture, it's also at the heart of Jewish culture as well. Think of these words, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This was a Jewish slogan, and it became their license for vengeance. Now, to be fair, this command of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it was a command that God gave in Exodus chapter 21, verse 24. But there was a context to which it was applied. The court. In court, a judge could give a verdict demanding equal punishment. In Exodus 24, God is instructing Israel how equal punishment is to work in the courts. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. Let's say that as a Jew, I was speeding as I drove my ox-pulled cart to the market for groceries. And while I'm driving, I get distracted by the carrier pigeon my wife sends me, reminding me to pick up some milk. Well, as I'm reading the message, I crash my ox cart into your only milking cow, killing the cow. Now, even though you saw me do it, let's say that in court, I deny that it was my fault. I blame the cow for being in the wrong place. Well, you dispute that, so you take me to court. With the evidence you present to the judge, including my carrier pigeon and the message that he brought me, let's say the judge finds me guilty and he demands equal punishment. So I am legally then required to provide you with one milking cow. Not a milking cow and three chickens, more than what you lost. Uh, Not only to provide you with five gallons of milk, that's way less than the cow that you lost. But equal punishment. Equal punishment from the court requires a new milking cow. Here's another example. Let's imagine you and I have a fight, and the fight gets out of hand, and you lose an eye. So you sue me, and you take me to court. Well, as a Jew, if the judge finds me guilty, equal punishment requires that I lose an eye. Not an eye in $1,000. Equal punishment, an eye for an eye. This is how God expected his people to handle their legal disputes in court. Now, here's why. If justice among God's people is equal punishment, 
I better be careful because what I do to you, the courts could allow you to equally do to me. So do you have a picture of how the courts were to function in Israel? Well, that is not how the Pharisees practice this command of equal punishment. Instead of it being a practice in the courts, the Pharisees made a broader application of how they could handle their personal relationships. The court versus personal relationships. Do you get the picture? See, the Pharisees take Exodus 21-24 to mean they, that they can personally be judge, jury, and executioner. If a Pharisee felt they were wronged by another person, there was no need for a court. The Pharisees could simply take revenge. And the whole time they were believing that they were obeying God's word. God said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, so they could invoke revenge on somebody else. The Pharisees twisted God's word and turned equal punishment in the courts into a reason for revenge. And then the Pharisees said the revenge was committed in obedience to God's word. The Pharisees twist God's word, making an injustice a righteous act. Again, they choose to twist Scripture rather than obey the direct commands of God. Well, what do I mean by the direct commands of God? Well, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, God makes this command, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the passage that Jesus uses to explain what God intended from his people in their personal relationships. In fact, look what Jesus says in our text this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. Look at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Hmm. If I could sum up in one sentence what Jesus is saying here, here's what I would say. Though equal revenge is required in the courts, outrageous love is required of Jesus' disciples. Outrageous love. Do you see that in verses 39 to 42? Listen to it again. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, you go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This opens with the command 
to not resist an evil person. Now, this makes it sound like the Christian action is to be passive, that as Christians, we are to just let evil people do whatever evil they want to do to us. Just go ahead and walk all over me. Go ahead, abuse me, use me, steal all that I own. Sin against me in any way that you want. I don't care because I'm being obedient to God by being passive towards evil. But that's not actually what the text says. You see, this word resist, it means to set against. And then there's this word evil, which means to oppose you or one who wrongs you. Jesus is saying, don't set yourself against one who wrongs you. In other words, Don't start a fight. Don't start a dispute. Don't start a rivalry. If you start a rivalry, you'll eventually want revenge. So how do you stop a rivalry from starting? Outrageous love. You knock them out with loving generosity. In fact, that's what the scenarios that follow show. Look at the second half of verse 39. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. In the Middle East, a slap on the cheek is the greatest form of insult. In ancient literature, a Roman slave once said, I would rather be whipped to death than flicked on the cheek. You see, a slap is an insult. A slap is to say, you're not even worth a fight. A slap in the Middle East is the equivalent of spitting in a person's face in America. It is a terrible, terrible insult. So Jesus is saying, when insulted, the citizens of the kingdom of God, they don't retaliate. Maybe you're insulted by another person's harsh words. Or maybe they're hateful actions. Or maybe you're insulted by their position on a matter that feels like an insult to something that you love dearly. Jesus is saying, don't retaliate. May I ask you a question? From just the content on your social media posts, how are you responding to insults these days? That's a tough question. Non-retaliation isn't our natural response. It can only be accomplished through, through the supernatural work of God's Spirit in the new heart that God gave us as citizens of the kingdom of God. Now remember, citizens of the kingdom of God are meek. Meekness isn't weakness, but power under control. If insulted, become meek. Allow the difficulty to break your pride. Allow difficulty to break your self-sufficiency that may live in you and I. And trust God to achieve His purpose. Uh, Kent Hughes gets real practical with this when he writes, and he explains this better than I just have. Listen to his quote. We are to set aside our petty ways of getting even the kind of living that punishes others by returning their own sins to them. If your spouse is messy, what do you do? You leave things messy in return. If your friend is late, you will be late next time yourself. If your friend offended you, you offend them. In effect, Jesus asks us, in turning the other cheek, 
to make the other person and his or her well-being the center of our focus. We think of them and adjust our actions according to what we think will point them to Christ. And when we really do this, we begin to affect them. Such vulnerable love brings them to spiritual awareness, end quote. It is this non-retaliating, forgiving, loving spirit that Jesus is talking about. Do your relationships in church, do your relationships in the community show this kingdom attitude that Jesus is talking about? Next, Jesus says that when a person sues you and is awarded your shirt, give them your coat also, verse 40. The coat was an item of greater worth than just a shirt. Uh, Let's translate this into our culture. If as a disciple of Jesus, you are taken to court and you're found guilty and you're fined $250, your shirt, for the wrong that you were committed, that you committed, give that person $500, your coat. Now, why would a disciple of Jesus go above and beyond what equal punishment in the courts requires? Well, to show how sorry they were for the trouble they caused. Remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who mourn, those who are sorry for their sin. Your outrageous love in giving your coat would be evidence that you follow Jesus. Right? Uh, Next, there is this expectation. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. You see, Roman law gave a Roman soldier the right to require citizens of Rome, to carry their burdens. By burdens, it meant their weapons, their equipment, maybe their luggage. And the soldier could invoke a citizen to carry it one mile, but only one mile. And the purpose of this law was to allow the soldier to catch their breath after carrying the items themselves for miles and miles. Though helpful to the soldiers, it was very inconvenient to the citizen who was forced into service. The service intruded on the Roman citizens' freedom. In fact, to add insult to injury, most of the time the Roman soldiers would choose people of lower social status to do this. So the Jews were a favorite victim of the Roman soldiers. Many men and women in the crowd that Jesus is speaking to this day, they had probably served as a baggage handler for the Roman soldiers. And Jesus says, Don't simply be a good Roman citizen and do the minimum. Be a good kingdom citizen and go two miles. This is outrageous love. Because it also included not only the service of two miles, going the extra mile in service, but doing it with a cheerful attitude. Again, to quote Kent Hughes, The cheerful attitude of service in the disciple of Jesus should be the kind that would cause a hardened soldier to say, what's with this person? This person has something I do not understand. Revolutionary disciples of Jesus possess a revolutionary joy, even when treated unfairly, calling everyone's heart upward. As Americans, We struggle this one when we feel that our freedoms are being messed with. Now, it's true. God made us free, and it's God's plan for all humanity to have liberty. But like the Jews, 
Like the Jews Jesus is talking to, we also live in a world where people are going to step on our freedom. What I'm about to say won't be popular, and I expect I will get emails and have somebody pull me aside to talk to me about this. But Jesus commands his disciples, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles and do it with a godly attitude. When outrageous love is shown, even when our freedoms are stepped on, people will know we are Jesus' disciples. Let's keep moving. Verse 42. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Oswald Chambers writes this. This is, this is the statement either of a madman or of God incarnate. Jesus is saying if someone has a need, a real need, and they ask for help, disciples of Jesus ought to give it to them. Again, Jesus is simply teaching what God taught Israel in the Old Testament, which the Pharisees seem to have forgotten. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted. Do not be tight-fisted toward them. When we give to people we know to be poor, or when we give to people who are in difficult times, we are to be generous in meeting their need. Don't give just a little bit to ease your conscience. As disciples of Jesus, we are to be generous. So why are disciples of Jesus to be outrageous in their love? Jesus tells us why in verses 43 to 48. Listen to what he says. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Now listen to what Jesus says. Be perfect. The idea is complete. Be complete, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This outrageous love of disciples Church, it imitates the love of God the Father for the world. Max Lucado writes about a big muscle-bound man named Daniel who was swindled by his own brother. And he vowed that if he ever saw his brother again, he would break his neck. Daniel would break his neck. And a few months later, Daniel became a Christian. Well, even so, Daniel couldn't forgive his brother. Well, one day the inevitable encounter took place on a busy avenue. And this is how Daniel described what happened. Quote, I saw my brother, but he didn't see me. And I felt my, my fists clench and my face get hot. My initial impulse was to grab him around the throat and choke the life out of him. But as I looked into my brother's face, my anger began to melt. For as I saw him, I saw the image of my father. I saw my father's eyes. I saw my father's look. I saw my father's expression. And as I saw my father in his face, 
my enemy once again became my brother. The brother found himself wrapped in those big arms, but in a hug instead of a choke. And the two stood in the middle of the river of people, and they wept together. And Daniel's words bear repeating again. He said this, When I saw the image of my father in his face, my enemy became my brother. Church, this is the test of a disciple's love. Am I free enough in Christ to look like my Father in the way that I love my enemies?